2: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A new look night time is coming to Ireland with a change of the licensing laws, meaning later openings for pubs and nightclubs open until morning. The government says the changes are needed.
3: I don't think the current situation where everyone empties out onto the streets at roughly the same time uh, is good and this will result in more staggered um, nights.
2: The Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation says hospital overcrowding has hit a new record for 2022. I'll speak to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. There will be a big change in the licensing laws in Ireland with pubs to open later and nightclubs given the ability to stay open until 6am. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but first I want to talk to Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carol McNeil about a very different story uh, because a 43-year-old man who sent messages and sexually explicit videos to Jennifer was given a suspended one-year sentence in court last week. Gerard Colhan admitted harassing her on various dates between January and March of 2020 um, Jennifer you're with me now in studio tonight as part of the panel discussion but first we wanted to come to this story you gave a statement um, outside court following um, I suppose the emergence of details about this terrifying campaign of har- harassment against you um, and Gerard Culhane was handed a one-year suspended sentence what's your reaction
4: to that sentence Well, look, I'm very glad that there was a conviction. I'm glad the matter is resolved and I'm clearly back to work with with my colleagues here this evening. Um, I thought it was very important to to take the case. I was concerned that if it was happening to me, it was happening to somebody else, maybe another woman in in Ireland, maybe somebody running against an election, maybe a young woman who didn't have the same wherewithal that I did to pick up the phone to the local chief superintendent during an election and say, look, there's a problem here. Or maybe it was somebody who a court had already said not to do this and that there was potential breach of a court order. So in either case, you know, it's simply it had to be it had to be stopped. So I mean I, I was treated extremely well by Angardi Shikona. There there was a, a process, it took a long time, but uh, there is a conviction and I think that's that's very important. Because some
2: victim support groups might say, you know, there was a maximum of seven years that could have been given in this instance, and that Jared Culhan you know, should he have gotten jail time in this instance? Yeah,
4: I've, I've I've seen some of that commentary, and I've seen it from different from from different sources. I mean, from my part, I'm glad it's resolved. I'm glad there's a conviction. I'm glad there is an outcome. Uh, I don't really want to go further than that. I'm going to leave that to the judge. But I, you know, it is it's it's for others to to, to comment on that. In this case, it's it's about me, and I'll I'll just I'll keep it to that. But I, I certainly learned a lot through the court process. Um, you know, I have much better insight from that, even though we've spent you know a lot of time in the justice committee looking at the court process from the perspective of complaints being a complainant is a completely different thing uh, and yeah, I certainly tell, have a much us, better insight into that. Uh,
2: tell us what's that that's like because, as you say, you would have you know heard of other people's experiences, but when you are there and you are going through that legal process yourself, and we hear that the courts can be a very cold place, um, for victims to face perpetrators, um, how was that experience for well, I you? I think you
4: know, like any public representative here, David, David Cullen is here, also, we all bring our own personal experience to politics and 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 to to that job, uh, representing people with different experiences. And as you go through life, you acquire more life experiences. And look, it is we've always recognized that that's a difficult place for a complainant to be. I now have a, a you know a slightly additional insight into that as I do other things through my own life experience. And you know, I'll bring that with me in the future. But like I just want, you know, it, it is it is possible to get a conviction. It's very clear that it's possible to get a conviction. And I, you know, I think this, you know, while while I don't welcome any of this conversation, you know, about myself, I think it's useful to show people that you can make complaints, that you will be taken seriously, that convictions are possible, and that this sort of behavior in the first instance just isn't normal and just isn't acceptable. And
2: that's something that you clearly wanted to get across outside the courts as well, as we heard in in your statement, that it's not acceptable and you're hoping that your actions and and that what proceeded in court will help others to come forward. Um, So thank you for speaking to us on that. Now, coming back to our top story tonight and the changing of licensing laws. It would allow pubs open from 10.30 in the morning to 12.30 a.m., seven days a week, while nightclubs would not have to close until 6am. Now, it's expected to be enacted next year if the legislation is passed by the Oireachtas. And here is what the Minister for Justice had to say about it earlier. At the same time, we've seen 329 off-licenses open. So the rural pubs that are closing are not currently being sold on in the vast majority of cases to other people opening pubs. They're actually either just disappearing or they're being sold to off-licenses so you know, a- acknowledging that we need to try and support people. Well, Finnegall Ltd. Jennifer Carl McNeill is with me, as is Sinn Féin TD David Cullenan, Craig Hughes, political correspondent for the Irish Daily Mail, and Sheila Gilhini the CEO at Alcohol Action Ireland. But first tonight, let's take you live to Tramlines nightclub in Dublin city centre, and Kira Doherty is there speaking with the industries affected by all of this. Kira.
5: Yes, thank you, Claire. I am joined by Ian Redmond, who is the owner of Tramline, a nightclub, as you say, and music venue in Dublin City Centre, and also by DJ Sunil Sharp, who is also spearheaded the Give Us the Night campaign. You're both very welcome to the programme, Uh, Ian. Why has this change, or these proposed changes, why have they been so warmly welcomed by your industry?
6: Well, primarily thanks to Sunil for all the work he's done over the last decade and a half on getting us this far. Uh, Nightclubbing is about going out till you want to go home and, you know, uh, people want to go out and they want to stay out late like they're allowed to in all other European capital cities, all other cities around the world so to have the option to stay out till 6am is fantastic, they don't have to they can go home at 3 if they want you know the, uh, the hospitality staff working in the city finishing up at 12 or 1 they now have the option to go out on a Saturday night which they didn't have before so for a multitude of reasons it's fantastic it gives our staff an extra shift as well we can hire more staff it's a it's a boon to the exchequer then so because there's more PAYE, peer employer's PRSI. So it actually doubles the amount of hours we can trade in any given week.
5: I'm very conscious that we are sitting here in Tramline on a Tuesday night and it's closed. The doors are closed. I mean, will these proposed changes mean that the doors will be open seven nights a week till 6am? Is the demand there for that?
6: Well, not as yet. There isn't the demand for it because there's not enough people living in the city and that's a planning issue. We need to get more people living in the city. I would have loved to have thrown a celebration party tonight to celebrate the fact that this is coming. But I didn't have a special exemption order so I can't open tonight because I didn't go to court two weeks ago to apply for a special exemption order to open tonight because I didn't know this was going to happen and that's the same the world over when we're trying to organize after parties for events if they come from the three arena or a school's rugby match where someone's won a senior cup match and we can't put those on on any given night if it's in short notice because we haven't applied for SEOs so with the new nightclub permit that's proposed we're delighted about it'll be an annual permit and we'll get it a year in advance and we know we can open any night we want till um, not saying we want to open till 6 every night, certainly 2 o'clock, 3, 4 but we want that opportunity to decide for ourselves when our staff uh, um, and our patrons have had enough then we'll close, you know, so it's, it's brilliant
5: Absolutely brilliant, I'm feel uh, Sunil, you have been calling from for this for a
6: very, very long time.
5: Um, It's seen, I suppose, as a really major step for the industry. But I know you think there's still a long way to go.
7: Yeah, there's a a long way to go in terms of time because we were hopeful that the reform, that these laws would be enacted by the end of the year. It doesn't appear that that will be the case. We would like to think that they could come that the legislation could be set and, and ready to go by early next year. That still remains to be seen. But in terms of the legislation, I mean, there's been a lot of announcements over the last two and a half years, but we're definitely going in the right direction now. And, Certainly even this morning, a lot changed between this morning and the media reports that were being, that were, were kind of being fed, so that we, like, I mean, we were only, we were finding out about what was happening later than perhaps we should have, you know, and um, we were being informed by the media what was happening, but that seems to be, you know, that happens a lot nowadays, you know, so uh, I, I was kind of expecting that. But after the media, after the briefing with the Justice Department today, we started to become a little bit more familiar with the intricacies of this reform and some of the other aspects of the reform that perhaps weren't um, highlighted as much today in the, in, the, in the main press release that made its way to media. So we're starting to get to grips with us, but there's still some work to be done on it, and I think every interest group, every stakeholder that's involved and is a voice in this will definitely have their own feedback to give back to the Justice Department. So there is still another level of uh, engagement that still has Hi. to happen, but it appears like we're nearly at the final hurdle.
5: Uh, What would you say to those who say, look we don't have a very healthy relationship with alcohol in this country. And this is, you know, quite simply going to be an opportunity for people to stay out longer and drink more. And that's the last thing that we need in this country. What do you say to those people who have those concerns? Well,
7: I'd say what's happening right now is they're decide- those people are deciding to stay in and drink more at home. I mean, that's where the rise is happening. People are drinking more at home. They're rejecting nightlife because there isn't that diversity. There aren't the venues, the flagship venues, the landmark spots that a lot of people Used to socialise, particularly with with older generations as well. Even and when I say older generations, I mean people from 25 and over. You know, a lot of people, particularly when they get to that age, they start to weigh up how good Irish nightlife is um, against other European countries. In fact, it's starting even earlier than that. But I think the education starts in the early 20s, even maybe you know late teens. People are starting to travel more, starting to see what's on offer abroad, and are 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 essentially voting with their feet and are getting out of Ireland. At the weekends in terms of alcohol consumption our, 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 our consumption is down it, it's, it's on a downward trajectory now it doesn't mean that we don't need to be mindful of alcohol consumption going back up but the the, the problem area now is in the off trade and drinking at home rather than in the on trade and in venues like this so.
5: all right senior sharp and aid redmond thank you both for taking the time to speak to us this evening back to you claire Kira, thanks for that. Uh,
2: Let's return to our panel now for some more reaction. And Craig Hughes, to come to you first. I mean, the question is, why now? Uh, We know with the pandemic that the industry was fairly decimated. Nightlife was really suffering and it was uh, on its knees um, in terms of an industry. But there's been lobbying around this for some 15 years or so, maybe more.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's an acceptance that our laws are really out of kilter with the rest of Europe. I mean, the existing legislation was back 100, in some cases 200 years. So I think it's about time it was reviewed. and I think it would make sense for it to be reviewed in a kind of shorter period and that again going forward. I also think there's a great appetite for it and I think you've also seen the impact of the laws um, had. I mean, Minister of gave figures today that 20 years ago there were over 500 nightclubs in Ireland, now there's only 80. So you see the real impact p- pack that has and, and as your speaker said there in the VT, I mean, the costs that are associated with the current licensing laws, I think it's 410 euro for every special exemption order you want to get each night. I mean, no wonder there's so many nightclubs going out of business.
2: Yeah, so I suppose this is all to streamline all of that, and make it mm-hmm. simple, and essentially that nightclubs can stay open to 6am uh, if they wish to. Um, Sheena Gilheeney, just to get your view on this, I suppose you're from Alcohol Action Ireland in the name, is, is to take action on, on curbing alcohol use or drinking responsibly. So there's a lot of fanfare around this announcement today. Uh, what are your views on it?
1: Well, we would have a concern about increasing licensing hours because all the evidence from right around the world at many, many different jurisdictions is that if you increase um, availability of alcohol, you increase alcohol use. And as you increase alcohol use, you get more harms from it. And uh, we we can certainly see that um, from a licensing hours perspective, the longer that uh, premises are open for the more harm there is. And there's many studies that that would show that.
2: What about what we were hearing um, uh, from Sunil there, um, who was speaking to Kira about the, the impact on the industry and all of that, saying what's actually happening is a lot of people are drinking at home because they can't stay out late, like, they can't stay out to all hours. They're curtailed, in essence, on what they can do on a night out. So they're drinking more at home. We know it's cheaper to drink at home as well. And that that's what's you know, sparking problems around some of these you know, major issues, increased levels of violence, domestic violence and all of these things that you're Rightly concerned about
1: uh, absolutely, and I mean certainly we do have a concern about cheap alcohol that's available, you know, through supermarkets and whatever. So I, I I do agree with that, and I do agree that actually it is better to be in a in a more controlled environment. But I come back to the evidence is that the longer that you have for opening hours, the more harm that you would see. You certainly won't find anybody, you know, working in the health service, or working in EDS, working, you know, like at the coalface of actually dealing with alcohol harm, who's saying we think this is a good idea. And in fact, actually, if you ask around the country, I just saw a poll air are on there today, you know um, actually there's there's fairly widespread concern about this. Um, we also know from other, you know, there's polling data there just today saying something like 46% of people are, are opposed to it. But we know already that people feel quite unsafe uh, on the streets um, right. here in Ireland. Okay. And I think that's an important thing to take into account. Yeah. What about what Sheila has to say there? That people,
2: you know, already maybe there is that feeling of a lack of safety on our streets. We talk about that all, all of the time. And then we know we have this problem with alcohol in the country as well. So where does this new legislation fit into all of that, Jennifer? Well, Can you I... see the concern? Of groups like Alcohol Action Ireland where they're coming from?
4: One of the reasons that we have difficulty is everybody leaving late night bars at the same time exactly, instead of in a more staggered way over the night, in a more natural way over the night, which of course leads to public order problems with everybody coming out at the same time, also leads to significant transport issues. And I think you know there's a lot of focus on nightclubs and staying open till six AM. I think in reality that's going to be a much smaller part of this. This is really about streamlining the process generally across the country, making it easier to make applications making the, uh, the opening hours for pubs streamlined across the country. But I think what's really important is where there is an application for something new, there will be a strong measure of local involvement. It's going to be done in the district court now instead of the circuit court. You're going to be able to bring in local people, local authorities, local communities, local health representatives make sure that there isn't an over-concentration to make sure it's the right balance. So I think while there's a lot of focus on nightclubs and so on and that would be, know, be great to have a much more vibrant nighttime economy particularly in the cities, I think there are no nightclubs at the moment in Galway mm. with one of them having <clears> closed. So, but, but this is it's not all about that, it is just about streamlining the process and making it more consistent and easier for people to run a business, to hire people and to have it, to, 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 you've seen some of the, the outlier examples there with, 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 with the people on the panel. Sunil? Uh, David does Sinn Féin see this as good news and um, we've talked
2: about it for years we've heard about you know back to actually Michael McDool talking about cafe culture and that he'd like to see that um, in Dublin city centre and elsewhere and sure that never came about um, what side are you on with this one
3: uh, well, I think it is good news. Uh, I welcome w- most of the changes. Uh, the answer to the question why now is because the laws are archaic. They're 200 years old, and I think reform of the licensing laws is well overdue. We've campaigned for it for a long number of years. It's a long time, Claire, since I was in a nightclub. I'm not sure about you or anybody else on the panel. I would say long before COVID. But my experience is that when now, people... well, have to just speak for yourself, well, I might have, I might have really to well. go again. Sure. But my experience <laughs> is that when people spill out onto the streets and have to it does cause public order disturbances and antisocial behaviour. And it has long been argued that to have the, the mm-hmm. nightclubs open longer would help in that.
2: Do, do you think, um, harking back to what Sheila was saying there, that the communities might be concerned, you know, a sense on the ground that if you can have clubs staying open until 6am and pubs staying open until 12.30, there's going to be a lot more noise, there's going to be a lot more action. It, didn't, it won't just end at 2.30, 3am. It could go on till, you know, beyond the early oh, hours and into breakfast time.
3: Of, I understand all of those arguments, but equally... (laughs) Yeah. We have people who are going to house parties. It's uncontrolled environments. There's lots of stabbings, Mm. lots of incidents that take place in house parties. I think it's better that we have people drinking in a controlled and regulated environment. And I think we have to treat people like adults. There is a broader issue in relation to alcohol dependency, which needs to be addressed. But these laws are archaic, and it's not often that I would agree with Jennifer or Fina Gale or the government, but on this issue, I think we do need to review the laws. Uh, Many of the changes in relation to the licensing laws themselves, the licensing fees, will reduce costs. I think all of that is, is for the good and I think we have to treat people like adults. Okay. This is a,
4: sorry, if I could just say it's an important piece for rural Ireland as well because there are pubs that have closed all over the country where before it was really, really difficult to get the licence and to reopen those. This is going to make that much easier, to make a, you know, a centre in a community that was there that can be reopened and can be done much more easily and much more cheaply. Maybe somebody wants to open it as a cafe during the day, as a bar in the evening, but we're trying to revitalise rural Ireland in so many different ways. These places have been the centre of communities in lots of different ways. And, it's, and, and this, this is a big step to make and that I think easier. that
3: cultural amenity license where you can That's have important. a small cultural event That's and you can have a, a bar for maybe an hour beforehand or an hour afterwards yeah. is a good move That's the well.
2: next thing, because we are hearing a lot about the, the cultural offering um, that this brings as well, Craig. How do you think it will improve all, all of that? And I suppose to talk to you as well, like you have your, your day job, you're here yeah. on that, but also you run a music festival. Craig Craigfest. It's Craigfest, <laughs> I think it's called. Uh, no, day and night festival, I think it is, in, in County Roscommon. Is that right? So, look, you'll know about even bringing rural communities together. Um, and, and how do you think this legislation? will change and improve uh, that cultural offering.
0: Yeah, so the night and day festival they have in, in Roscommon, um, so the process we would have had to go through is that we had to get an existing bar licence from, from a, a pub that, and then they weren't able to operate that weekend. Now they happened to be closed anyway. And then we also had to get an occasional dancing licence um, and, and pay like €150 Euro for that. Um, and it shows how ridiculous uh, the system is that had to be attached to a specific part of the festival. So technically it was on the main stage. So technically you're only allowed dance if you're at the main stage. So it just goes to one level of how absurd it is at the moment. Um, so
2: the focus wasn't on alcohol, and yet you had to go through all these hoops just in
0: order to stay open late or to operate with the with with crowd in a particular it, setting. Exactly. And now, my understanding on, on the changes that are coming they're not going to be that much different when it comes to to festivals. I think the the occasional dancing licence might be removed. I think there's another interesting aspect of of these laws when it comes to cultural institutions, so this is a bit different to the way festivals will be treated, so whereby you could get a one-off licence or or even an annual licence for, like, if you wanted to have an event in an art gallery or something like that, so it just gives provision for that to stay open again and serve alcohol in the same times that pubs will be allowed to stay open.
2: Yeah, Sheila, on that, and we are hearing that this isn't just about going out and drinking yourself into oblivion and staying out to 6am um, in order to do that but that there is you know a cultural aspect to all of this apart from people who run nightclubs saying look this is this is part of the dance culture that has now been decimated in this country and that we need to we need to bring that back to life but also the likes of you know museums galleries other things that they can they have a little <coughs> bit more leeway and leniency about how they operate see one,
1: one of the things that i, I find you know really quite uh it's puzzling because there's just this assumption that uh in order to enjoy yourself in order to have a cultural experience there has to be alcohol along with it and that's just simply not the case but that is what what Really, all of our our, uh, our panelists here are saying tonight, and I would also point to that there is such a strange dichotomy in the government. So we have the Department of Health through the Public Health Alcohol Act, actually looking to reduce the level of alcohol use by 20% in, in the country, and that's being done through the Public Health Alcohol Act, which has not been implemented. Now, this that that legislation is there since 2018. We have a long way to go before it's actually fully implemented, particularly around um, the advertising of alcohol and the marketing of it. So that's one. Element of the government and then the other end over here in the Department of Justice are saying liberalise things, make alcohol more widely available, make many more spaces available for alcohol and there's just a complete mismatch and what we would be saying is we really need to have a central agency within the heart of government that actually looks at all aspects of alcohol mm-hmm. so you I don't think have these strange the mismatches in uh, and policy and, and on top of that I think we really need to um, gather the data properly and really measure if we're going to introduce you know, changes that are, that are being proposed. Talk that about the impact that those changes yes. will have. Yeah, and I think yes, just on, on
3: that point, this will work its way through the Justice Committee of the Oireachtas. I think all of those legitimate concerns that Sheila is raised will obviously be debated. I think we have to hear from mm-hmm. all voices, all stakeholders. There is a balance to be struck. But at the end of the day, we're talking about laws which are archaic are 200 right. years old. But and I think that most of the changes which are being recommended, I would support.
2: Um, to respond to what Sheila has to say, Jennifer, about, you know, what looks like double standards that you're, you know, in action um, as, as, as groups who would you know, look for more action on, you know, alcohol reducing harm campaigns yeah. versus liberalising it all and opening, having a, a drinking free for all. But I think what Seven we're trying to say,
4: you know, I, I don't agree that they're competing. What we're trying to do is create regulated environments. And there are shops all over the country that people have seen have, have at their own cost put up huge segregated areas to make alcohol less available, less visible um, within shops. And and, and and that is being of implemented course right course, It will
2: change off license hours as well. Because they're going yeah, in to a be, small, yes, going
4: in, a, in a small Sundays way. But, but what we on. have in with the with provision for for this is creating more regulated spaces where you have to have, you, you know, you have to get a license, you have to renew that on an annual basis, you have to be of good character. It can be enforced by the guardiee. There's much stronger enforcement mechanisms for people who are not managing this properly. But what we have at the moment is a completely unregulated drinking culture where we have incentivized people to stay at home. Now COVID. Didn't help that, mm. frankly. But we don't create different spaces. I mean, I don't agree that, you know, we, we control it, you know, we're trying to incentivize alcohol everywhere. It would be lovely to go to a cultural event and have the adult choice as to whether to have a glass of wine or not. I can stay at home. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Or anybody can stay at home and have as many glasses of wine as, as they wish. It's about trying to create a measure of, of choice um, and, and, and personal responsibility and personal choice in it. But what we have at the moment is too unregulated, and we have very little way of gathering data in relation to that. And we're trying to get the balance right to make it more streamlined, but also encourage people into more regulated, okay. safe environments.
2: Craig, with all of this, you know, there will be many people who say, This is great, that's brilliant, I can. Go out and businesses saying that this will save us but there is extra resourcing that's required if you're going to stay open to 6am like in the area of public transport um, ensuring that there are taxis there for everyone and um, increase guard the presence for some you know communities next to nightclubs next to late night venues
0: yeah, I mean, this was put to Minister McIntyre earlier, um, and, and she was saying that the Guardian is saying that the biggest issue is there is uh, large large crowds gathering at once, and to disperse that would help. I think, you know, I, I lived in Berlin for a while, where this, we're looking towards a Berlin model, and I think it's the big elephant in the room here is that you know, a city like Berlin has, has excellent public transport. You know, at the, at the moment, not only can you not get public transport home at night, you can't even get a taxi if you want to, so it is very difficult to see how how uh, how, how you put the
3: cart before the horse on this one. I got a taxi coming out to the studio and the taxi driver was making the point that... Uh, the worst nightmare for them is everybody spilling out onto the streets at the same time. Mm-hmm. So having staggered opening hours or people coming out at different times is actually mm-hmm. best for, for mm-hmm. that sector. Mm-hmm. There are challenges for staff, I, I would accept that as well. So all of these issues will have to be talked through, there has mm-hmm. to be engagement with trade unions and stakeholders, and I think all of that will be done as part of that uh, process as this works its way through but the Je- Yeah,
2: Jennifer, on the issue of, say aside from taxis, public transport, we don't have 24-hour public transport in this country, no. so if people want to go out and stay out, it's not necessarily easy to get home after that night
4: out. That's right. We don't, and we should, particularly in the cities, and I don't disagree with you on that, but that doesn't mean that we don't make these changes where we st- we get people coming out in a more controlled way over a long period of time between midnight and 6am to see that. Everyone... Do you
2: expect to see the Department of Transport coming in and saying, right, well look, now that yes. we are making these licensing law changes, we're going to
4: I think that needs to happen anyway, well, to be honest with you. There's people working in different ways who, yeah. who need to access that. They're not codependent but that has to happen anyway but I think that taking the pressure off everybody coming out or the large body of people coming out at the same time maybe before they're ready to uh, and having to get a taxi or trying to get on train or you know a bus at the same time Nightlink or whatever doesn't work. Alright that's
2: all we have time for and that my thanks to Jennifer Cow mcneil and Sheila Gilheny uh, David and Craig will be joining me later on in the show but up next with hospital waiting lists at record levels and warnings of a twin twindemic coming this winter I'll be speaking to the Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly yeah. yeah. Very welcome back i'm joined now by the minister for health stephen donnelly minister very welcome along to the program tonight Thanks, um just we were discussing about the changing licensing laws and what's uh, due to be enacted in the new year from a public health perspective we have heard some concerns we had alcohol action ireland the ceo sheila gilheaney on this evening saying they were concerned about public health consequences um, do you share those concerns at all are are you worried about what this legislation will mean and putting pressure on the system?
9: Well, we we take the issue very seriously and we would listen very carefully to people like Sheila and other advocates. Um, It's about getting the balance right. And I think on the show earlier on, you heard from your panellists as to the the benefits for rural Ireland, the benefits for the nighttime economy, the benefits for people to get on and live their lives. Um, As Minister for Health, what's important to me is that we have very extensive measures tackling harmful drinking. Um, so what have we got? We've got physical separation. Uh, I brought in minimum unit pricing. Uh, it wasn't popular necessarily with the entire industry, but we think we think it'll have an effect. There's a very extensive advertising ban uh, in place now, which is, uh, which is very good as well. So what we want to do is we want to have modern licensing laws, let people live their lives. It's still a court-based system, um, but be very clear about... Uh, The bans on advertising, physical separation, minimum unit pricing, and supports for people who um, are in harmful drinking, supports for people who end up in addiction.
2: Okay, all right, listen, to move on to um, a big story that is. with us today, not just today, actually. In fact, we've been seeing issues around overcrowding um, since uh, the start of this year and before that again. But we have new figures tonight in response to a parliamentary question asked by Sinn Féin's David Colnan about average admission times in our emergency department, which I believe are quite staggering. Uh, they are due to be published in the Irish Daily Mail tomorrow, but they show that those aged over 75, waited on average nearly 15 hours to be seen in July, August and September of this year. So to break it down, 15.3 hours on average in July, 14.8 hours in August and 14.8 hours in September. These are people over the age of 75. Our mothers, our fathers, our elderly relatives, um, the most vulnerable in our society, Minister, what's your reaction to that?
9: it's something that has been going on for many years in this country that we're determined to bring to an end. I was in Galway just last week uh, and, and there were patients, again, many older patients on both sides of a corridor in a new temporary emergency department. It's something that happened before COVID. It's something that COVID has made worse uh, and it's something that we are determined to tackle. How long now, are you Minister for Health? Uh, about just, just over two years.
2: Okay, so over two years. Mm-hmm. And when you hear today... Those average figures, 15 hours for someone over the age of 75 to be waiting for admission in our emergency departments. What do you think?
9: That it's not acceptable in a modern country. We are a a modern, uh, uh, wealthy country and this, this, uh, this has to end. Who do you blame for it? Look, it is the result of many, many years of not having enough resource in our public system. We have one of the lowest level of hospital beds. We have too few hospital doctors, and there hasn't been sufficient community care to get people out of of hospital. Because while the focus is on emergency departments, actually the solutions to the emergency departments lie in keeping people well at home and then getting people into the hospital and then discharge. So what are we doing? Over the last two years, uh, we've added record capacity. So by the end of the year, we'll have added uh, about a 1,000 extra hospital beds, probably about 17,000 extra staff, uh, at an entire new community care system. So we're building capacity. So
2: we shouldn't have those situations where elderly people are waiting over 15 hours when they go to our emergency department to be seen.
9: Oh, we can't have, we can't have. And but it, we it, do have. I, we do, and it has to come to an end. Now, if it wasn't for COVID, the problem we have is that whilst we've added record capacity, record staff, record beds, record diagnostics, while we've done all of those things we still have four to 500 COVID patients every day. So as quickly as we are adding capacity, um, unfortunately, the care needs of COVID are soaking the so capacity. So
2: essentially, you can't keep up Um, I'm just thinking of what the INMO have come out and said today. We've seen a 27% increase of patients on trolleys in the last week. Today, we had a new October record, uh, Minister, of 669 patients on trolleys, more in a single day in October than any previous uh, year over the past decade. And with that... You know, nurses are saying that we need to have capacity now in the private sector to come in and help with this. We saw it happening during COVID times and there needs to be this really sharp focus now on recruitment and retention of nurses and midwives. And we need to cancel actually elective surgery, which is a sad indictment. But would you agree that that needs to happen when you see figures like that and we're uh, we're not even seeing the true effects potentially of a twindemic?
9: So certainly, what I would agree with is we have to keep adding capacity, and we have to modernise how we run our healthcare system. So we need more. We need more nurses. We need more doctors. Now, in fairness to the HSE, over the past two years, they've added more uh, nurses, midwives, other healthcare professionals to our public system than any year on record, and they did, they, they did that during a pandemic. And I think I think uh, I think they deserve uh, recognition for that. However, the reality is historic underinvestment in the system uh, is taking time uh, and COVID is soaking up a lot of those resources. The other thing that's happening, of course, is the hospitals are seeing the highest level of people coming into the emergency departments Mm. uh, at this time of the year that they've ever seen. And critically, we're talking about those who are uh, uh, older uh, and they are coming in in record numbers and they're coming in sicker and they're coming in more frail because of COVID.
2: Do you think that all non-emergency elective care should be curtailed as the INMO is suggesting at this point in the winter?
9: Not at this point, but but what their call goes to is one of the real challenges we have. So we have two big challenges in healthcare, waiting lists and trolleys. And you you can temporarily deal with one, you can temporarily deal with the trolley Mm. uh, situation by cancelling elective care. But the moment you do that, people are waiting longer, the waiting lists go go up and the pressure builds on the system. So we have to try and tackle both at the same time. We have a winter plan in place that looks to hire an additional 600 or 600 or more people. And we have a very comprehensive... How's that going? It's going fine. Again, we're at the, we're at the a record number of people recruited into the system in the last uh, two years. They- I'm
2: just wondering when you see posters up and, you know, right outside our hospitals advertising these great jobs in Australia and we know uh, that nursing, we know that medical staff are taking up on those positions and we know that recruitment is a critical issue. And it's not just the IMO saying that, it's the IMO, mm. it's doctors, it's, you know, we are hearing that right across the board as a problem. That's why I'm wondering, when you say, you know, it's going, it's going okay. How is it going okay?
9: It's going okay because the HSC have just had the two biggest years of recruitment they've ever had since the HSC was set up. So we can look at it in two ways. We can look at it and say more needs to be done, and it does. And we sanctioned about 11,500 extra staff this year. Uh, We know we need more nurses, we know we need more GPs, we know we need more uh, hospital consultants. Um, At the same time, we must focus on what's working as well. And and as I said, the HSC has added more healthcare professionals to our public service in the last two years uh, than ever before. What we've got to do is we've got to continue that momentum, continue adding capacity. But uh, can I just say at the same time, there are parts of the system and there are certain hospitals where we need to run the system better. So, for example, I sent a specialist team into Limerick, Uh, sent it into Cork and Galway now, Uh, they are making improvements. They're seeing patients discharged out of uh, hospital quicker, which frees up beds in the hospital to take people off trolleys. Okay,
2: uh, you mentioned GP care there, and I know the budget made big promises around extending GP care to more than 400,000 additional patients. Mm -hmm. Now, people will see that headline and be really happy to hear about it, but then they try ringing up and making an appointment with their family doctor and they can't get one today, they can't get one in three days' time, and they may have to wait next week to get that appointment. Is that sort of the sacrifice here, that if you're offering extra medical cards and you're saying, you know, yes, we can offer it to more children, um, as you wish to do, under sixes, under sevens as well, then lower your expectations and expect to wait a week to see your doctor.
9: No, not at all. So we're doing two things at the same time. We are dramatically reducing the costs for patients. Uh, and between uh, six and seven-year-olds which are bringing in this calendar year and moving up to the median income uh, next year. Um, we're going to provide about 500,000 men, women and children with GP cards. Yes, and I've mentioned that and people will be happy
2: to hear about that. What about GPs? They're not happy to hear about that. They say they're overworked, this is all politically motivated and it's simply not workable. The system's going to break.
9: The the GPs have referenced the fact that we need to add capacity to general practice and and we do and we are. So uh, we're increasing the number of college places and training places. So back in 2009 there were 120 GPs in training in, in Uh, In any given year. There's now nearly 260 so a big increase. Uh, We're adding more practice nurses. We're adding a lot more funding. So compared to just three years ago we're spending 40% more in general practice. And then if I could just say the final thing is we're adding an awful lot of services for GPs. So they now have access to hospital consultants primary care teams, diagnostics uh, specialist are we, older persons are teams are we going that, to see, that they never had before. Are we
2: going to see more advanced nurse practitioners in practices? Are yeah. we going to see short term? Because it sounds great training up doctors and that, that, that's good to see. This isn't going to help the situation when you're making announcements about additional medical cards and more people mm. getting into the system and people can't even go and see a doctor in their own home county. Uh, they have to you know, cross county borders in order to see a GP. That, that's not going to help them short term this winter.
9: It, well, what, what will help is, is GP care being free for them, which means, which means the, the financial barriers are gone, will, will be removed. But what we not are if doing... if you can't
2: see your family, no, not if you can't get to a doctor.
9: No, no of course. So what we're doing is we're, we're investing very heavily in general practice. Um, the 2018 Capacity Review suggested we need about 40% more GPs uh, by, I think, 2031. But critically, as you point out, it said we need about 90% more practice nurses. That's one of the big areas of investment. Okay, a
2: couple of questions um, from our viewers because we did ask people just to, to get in touch with us because uh, they knew you were coming on the programme tonight, Minister. Uh, Christine Losher, actually, Professor of Immunology at DCU, um, saying, why don't you make the flu vaccine free for everyone? We talk about this fear of a, of a twindemic coming on stream. More people will get it if it's free and this will help the situation in our hospitals this winter. It,
9: it's a good question and I think it's something we can look at in the future. It is free for a lot of people. So any of your viewers tonight can look. Uh, there's age groups, children, older people and then there's a very very long list of underlying conditions people might have uh, why not for everyone though would that
2: not make it easier all round and and encourage and incentivize everyone to get it done and in turn
9: help you know older more vulnerable people in in society it's certainly something we can look at it's not the recommendation i have right now i got the flu vaccine myself earlier on today can i say did you pay for it i did yeah Uh, but 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 can i say that uh as of today, we release figures that 600,000 people have now taken the, uh, the flu vaccine. So can I thank all of your viewers who've taken it? And we were talking earlier on about uh, emergency departments. The single most uh, helpful thing that all of us can do this winter is get the flu vaccine and get the COVID vaccine. And we've had great progress in each. And I want to thank Everyone who has stepped forward and got vaccinated and and just on the COVID vaccine, just in the last three weeks, which is the new bivalent uh, vaccine, the one for specifically for Omicron, uh, we've had quarter of a million people in three weeks have taken it up. So there's an awful lot of people stepping forward.
2: Okay, on that one. um, Look, we know come December, there's a reshuffle on the cards um, in government. Is this job that you're in now, is this a job you want to be in come the new year?
9: What I can say is over the last two years, we've added record capacity, which we've talked about. We've also rolled out really important new services like in women's healthcare. care. Yeah. Do, and, and do you want to be I, in well, the I'm, job I'm, I'm for the it. new year? And, okay. and, 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 and as we were saying, we're cutting costs for patients, right? So we're well on our way to our goal of universal healthcare. I would love the opportunity to finish that job, but ultimately that's a decision for the T. Okay, at the so end of the OK, you,
2: so you'd like to stay on, because there is a sense, I suppose, that when it comes to Fianna Fáil ministries, there's housing and health, and they are seen as the poison chalices here. So if there was an opportunity for Fianna Fáil to for that to be moved on to Fine Gael, then there would be happy people within Fianna Fáil on that one. But you, you'd like to stay on in the role, is what it's you're been saying.
9: The, it's been the, 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 the greatest challenge, the greatest honour of my life. But can, can I just say... There are huge challenges, decades-old challenges, but thanks to the extraordinary people in our healthcare system, uh, our frontline workers, the HSC, the Department of Health, real progress has been made. So do I want to continue pushing that progress? Yes, yes, I would love to. Briefly on
2: that, because you mentioned all these frontline staff who are doing such a good job. You know, medical staff say post-pandemic, they are in a state of burnout and there's 46,000 of them who are yet to receive pandemic bonus payments. What do you say to those people tonight?
9: Uh, they, are, they are coming, uh, and I've asked the HSE to expedite them. I'm not satisfied with the pace uh, that it has happened. The HSE staff by, largely have got theirs. The agency staff uh, are getting theirs. The so Section 38, Section 39s, I've asked the HSE to take a different approach, which is to say, move to self-assessment, send them the money, and then we can audit afterwards. Will
2: they, will they have it by the end of the year?
9: I, the, I, I very much want to see that happen, yes.
2: All right, there we'll yeah. leave it. Minister Stephen Donnelly, thank you for joining us in studio tonight. Um, we will have lots more reaction after the break, so do stay with us. And some news just reaching us this evening and Garthie are investigating a shooting incident in Talla earlier this evening shortly after 6.20pm. Garthie were alerted to reports of shots fired in Dunamore Crescent and a man in his 30s was treated at the scene for an apparent gunshot wound. He was taken to amb- by ambulance to Talla University Hospital and his injuries are not thought to be yeah. life-threatening. Uh, Well, let's get reaction now to that interview with Minister Stephen Donnelly. And I'm joined once again by Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, David Colnan, and Craig Hughes, political correspondent at the Irish Daily Mail. And, uh, David Colnan, I talked there with the minister about uh, those waiting times for admission at our emergency departments. As I said, you know, quite striking figures that older people waiting 15 hours um, for admission to our hospitals or to be seen um, really tells us a lot about the state of our emergency departments and the state of our hospitals this season.
3: It does clear and it's a disgrace to be quite honest, but I do want to make one quick point if I can, that I'm the main opposition health spokesperson there for two and a half years. The minister is in place for two and a half years. He has still to debate me publicly in any studio. I sat here for the first part of this programme. I had to leave. I had to watch the minister right. and then come back and react. I think it would be well, better if well, the, well, minister the minister engaged in constructive The Minister said the debate.
2: he was here well, in he said he was here for a one on one interview, but you know, as but I he say, should debate, we, and, and I, and I, I, we, asked, I and put we, it to him before he came onto like the programme. Program. In
3: relation to the, the issue at hand, that's a parliamentary question response that I got back, and I've been tracking this for some time. The wait times in emergency departments are chronic at the moment, we have a real crisis. It is down in part to the very high presentations that we're seeing, but it's also in part because people who should be treated in the community people who can't get access to out of GP care are ending up having to go to emergency departments because we don't have the capacity in the community. We had today from the INMO the figure 669 patients today on hospital trolleys in our hospitals across the state. That's a record for any day in October, any time in our history. That's what this minister now has to stand over. At the same time, the INMO are saying that there are uh, people who are in hospitals that need step-down or recovery beds that can be moved out of those beds to free up capacity. I spoke to Nursing Homes Ireland today and yesterday, the, the CEO, and I said, can your providers provide additional capacity in the short term? And these are private providers, but it would free up capacity. And do you believe the
2: Department of, uh, of Health and the HSE have not explored these options
3: I, I do, because I put it to very senior officials in the Department of Health who I met over the last number of weeks, and they say that, yes, that's something that can be looked at. That's something that should have been looked at, and, and that's the problem. The Minister is presenting all of these plans that won't be delivered. For example, in terms of our emergency departments, he announced as part of the winter plan the hiring of 50 consultants in emergency departments. There is no chance, clear mm. that any of those, very few of those consultant posts will be in place for this winter. The Minister produces a plan when the winter is upon us. The time okay. to plan for this year's winter was last year's budget and in last year's budget not one single additional community bed or acute bed beyond what was already committed was provided for and that's on the minister so when the minister says I'm determined to bring this to an end it's a bit of a joke when he's two years into the job and hasn't done it and he has to stand over what's happening in our hospitals at the moment.
2: Um, You'd wonder Craig two years into the job and you know I asked him about that reshuffle come December I mean if you, if you can't, if we're seeing those, those trolley figures like we're seeing today and we're seeing the, the immense pressure on the system and to anyone watching, they'll say, what's the change between this year, last year, the year before or the many years that have gone? We haven't seen improvements in the system at a pace in which we need to see them.
0: Yes, and I think historically uh, the Department of Health has been a very difficult portfolio. I mean, it's I for how long do we, we have to look back for us to have trolley crises every winter over- overcrowding? It isn't a new phenomenon. Um, and when it comes to the Minister's current position, uh, it's very difficult to see if Micheál Martin will remove him or not from, from the cabinet, there is a question mark over him. There, there are people who, who want the job. But you have to remember that Micheál Martin, as a former health minister, is probably very hands-on um, in his role as Taoiseach with Minister Donnelly there as well. When you look at what Mr. Minister Donnelly has done, I mean, from his perspective, if, if, he, if he leaves office, he'll probably go, OK, I got them through the end of a pandemic. He'll point to some of the minor issues that he, that he brought through. I don't think it's, it's it's realistic now at this stage for him to expect that, that he's going to be able to bring down these waiting lists and, and, and trolley times in, in his remaining tenure as Minister.
2: Yeah, and we're already hearing, as I say, those figures that are presenting to us around the waiting times mm. at emergency departments that the pressure is really on when you hear about what the INMO and nurses are now calling for in terms of taking this curtailing uh, elective surgery and what are we at? You know not even the end of october
0: now yeah i mean the shocking stories even today in the doll i mean social democrats td uh, jennifer whitmore raised a very sad case in the minister's own constituency uh, of a childhood scoliosis who's waiting more than two years to be seen i mean these these stories are everywhere and, and it, the pressure is only going to mount on, on Minister Donnelly as, as, as the time goes by.
2: Okay, there we leave it. Uh, thanks to Craig and to David Colnan. That is it from us. Our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight. VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care.